Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. people like me. I'm incredibly vulnerable right off the bat. I want to be like that. That's how I connect to people. I don't have a lot to hide. I don't really have anything to hide. Those words from writer Fariha Roshin could not be more true. I spoke to her last fall around the time her debut novel, Like a Bird, came out in paperback. The book had been a work in progress for 18 years. She started when she was 12, when the idea came to her in a dream. Imagine living with a piece of art for that long, to revisit something created by your younger self and then to finally let go after all that time. Like a Bird follows a mixed-race girl who gets kicked out of her New York City home after being sexually assaulted. She has to find a new path in life with the guidance of her grandmother's ghost. And though the book dives headfirst into thorny territory, it's not without hope. Faria wants to tell a story about moving forward and healing. The resulting book was praised and featured by places like the Globe and Mail, Vogue, and Refinery29. Like a Bird isn't her first foray into the public eye. She's released a book of poetry and has written articles for places like the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Village Voice, often focusing on issues of Muslim identity. And just like her writing, our conversation was powerful and intense. But what came through was hope and passion. Faria Roshin, welcome to This Being Human. Thank you. I want to sort of start in some ways at the crossroads of things, at the intersections of things. You've lived between a lot of worlds, Canada, Australia, Bangladesh, where your ancestors are from. And now you're in New York City, this famed metropolis. What does New York mean to you as a home now, given that you've come from all of these different places? Wow, what a big question. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny, like, I just turned 31, which I think to a lot of people is like a baby. But to me, it's like, I'm 31. I've lived a lot of lives, as you just pointed out. And the thing that hit me was, I'm not American. I don't have American sensibility. I have a faux American accent that I picked up. I don't know how. A lot of myself is a mystery to me, but I go with it. You know, I think that that's probably what 
is the most obscure part of me. Like I trust myself. I trust where I take myself. And I think that that says a lot about how I followed the sense of geography that pulled me to New York. Growing up in Australia and growing up, I think also particularly in a very abusive household, which unfortunately kind of marred my entire experience of being young. And I think when you're when you're in that kind of situation, there's a lot of domestic violence and there's a lot of um, just um, dissatisfaction with your life and with your parents and with your family. And, you know, m- my parents are extremely talented individuals, but they've, you know, I've seen the ways in which colonization, partition, the liberation war, being an immigrant, how that's broken them. And... I'm seeing now how I believe I was time traveling. I believe now that I created the reality of this, this 12 year old created this reality that could exist 18 years later, which was completely uh, against the grain of what I was raised with. I don't know how I did it, but I think New York kind of became this like way of like trying to fight for something. And it was this, both a, a vessel and a, and a crucible, I think, for me. You know, it was a, it, I knew that it was going to be like this reckoning and, and, and things were just going to come out of this experience. And I think a lot of like weird kids, kids that like feel like outsiders are drawn to New York because it is this, there is this commiseration to the city, you know, that you will come to the city and it will understand you. And... That is, I think, a very felt experience of Talian, like a bird. You know, she, the city revives her. You know, she's never alone because she's with the city. And I, I feel the same way. I came to New York through a dream. Do you feel like you've arrived home in a city like New York City? I did. I really did. So I've had a lot of romance with the city. You know, I came here when I was 18 for the first time and did an internship at the United Nations and was I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. That was my track. And basically came and was like, that's not for me. I'm not doing this with my life. And then came back the next year for school, ended up dropping out, stayed. And then because I'm not American, I've had a lot of on and off chances to live here. And now I think to go back to this idea of like being like, oh, I'm not American, has a lot to do with the fact that I'm very much an immigrant. And that I am, I'm on a, on a visa that, you know, calls me a foreign alien. You know, like, I am that person. I am too. I feel it. I feel you. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. So you got it. And it's, it's, you know, being Muslim in America, not to go right there immediately, but it's true. You know, there is a different kind of tenor to our reality here. We're watched differently. We're surveilled differently. Those are things that even I think in a pre 9-11 world was like alive. And for me, I can't divorce that from my experience because I'm so I'm such a proud Muslim. So I, I see I see Islamophobia everywhere and I've always felt it. I felt that more than anything else in my life. I keep bringing back to you, I'm not American because New York is beginning to surprise me and fail me in ways that I, I didn't expect. And I think that that's also part and parcel of America and living in America. You know, I think so much of it comes down to 
the experiences of movement and migration. And like you said, you know, migration and movement is in our DNA. When I reflect on my own family, and as you were speaking, it was sort of ticking those boxes. The experience of partition in 1947 and becoming refugees. And then for your family and for my wife's family, the experiences of 1971 and the independence of Bangladesh, but then moving from the subcontinent and then moving again to another place and then moving again to another place. It feels like migration and movement is in your DNA and in your ancestors' DNA. And you know, when you move and you migrate so much, you're contending with, but also have the ability to contend with lots of change. And I'm wondering that in all of these changes, in these migrations, in these movements, what were the books that captured your imagination, kept you company, gave you solace, uh, grounded you? I read voraciously. I always have... Because, again, I think it was a way that I tended to my loneliness. I was able to find myself in books. So, you know, from childhood, I've been reading from everything from, like, you know, Lord of the Rings. I was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. I changed my name to Arwen when I was 11. I demanded everybody call me that. So I was a major, major nerd. I learned Elfish. Like, I just, I think actually it's technically Elvish. So, yeah, (laughs) just got (laughs) to fix that (laughs) technicality. You know, but, and then I also had a radical father that was, you know, telling me to read Empire by Arundhati Roy. So, like, Arundhati Roy to me is an incredibly important figure in my own politicization, but also just as somebody that I look to, to you know, as a, as a lodestar, you know, and Women That Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes and um, a lot of Audre Lorde's work, James Baldwin, June Jordan, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Noam Chomsky. Those were the works that really, 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 I think helped me with my identification and understanding myself as a racialized person in a white supremacist world, which is very much, I think, a foundation of my dad's teaching. He's a Marxist and he's a poli-sci professor. I mean, in terms of literature, Zadie Smith, I was reading a lot of Zadie Smith trying to, you know, white teeth, she has this Bangladeshi character. And, you know, like, again, like London and, and British ecosystems, culture, they factor us in a lot more. Our histories there are so alive. And so we we exist in their temporalities and their understanding of like the world. You know, we're not just nothing, a blank slate. But the cool thing about being a blank slate, and I will say about reading, is that what I I also think I started to do, because White Teeth had such a phenomenal impact on me. I read it when I was 11. I started writing Like a Bird when I was 12. So it was like, I think it must have been sort of the friction that I needed to believe that I could exist on the pages, that my story could exist. You talk about starting your your novel at the age of 12, and we're going to get there in just a second. But I kind of want to know, how are you like as a, as a kid? If I met Fariha at school, what would be the Fariha I would have encountered? I might cry. Um, I've been doing a lot of inner child work. (laughs) Um, 
I was a really good kid. And um, it's funny because when I was 12, I was a really good kid. I was um, incredibly involved in, in social justice. I started the social justice group at my school and, you know, it was very much my dad's doing. I, I was really involved, you know. I was canvassing for Oxfam and Amnesty and, you know, I just became a vegetarian and I was very, I knew who I was. And I guess the reason I'm getting emotional is because in my adulthood, I'm reckoning with the fact that I'm a child sexual abuse survivor. So that is a really huge part of my life that I hid from because I thought that it was easier to not acknowledge it, to just feel like it was a thing that I survived. And I think that that's a very South Asian thing as well. It's a very Muslim thing. And these are the things that exist in our cultures and our societies as much as any others. So it's important that we talk about it. It's important that I feel I am honest and I just name it. I don't even have to go into it. I just have to name it because it's, it is an act of solidarity to, to say that this happened to me. And it does change the way that I remember myself because I remember myself more clearly now. And I can remember how the goodness and the wanting to be very, I was a very, I was really invested in, in, in being a good person as I still am. But that so much of that was a reaction to my terrible home life. And so I always just thought that it was like, cause I was a good person and that cause I, I had God, you know, I really, I've always felt very close to God. And I think it's because God and Islam were ways that I saved myself. It was the thing I held on to. You talk about a, a dream that you had when you were 12 years old and this idea of a novel came to you, which 18 years later turns into your debut novel, Like a Bird, which has won accolades upon accolades all over the world. What was the dream for Iha? It was a dream that I would be heard. It was very simple. You know, it's sometimes it's just so, so simple what we want. It's just to be heard. And, you know, I wrote this story because I couldn't tell my own. And so it became that. And it became like a bird. And at a certain point, and I guess um, I've hit that point, <laughs> I'm having to acknowledge that as I face this book. And it's very humbling work, you know? It's, it's, it's the work I want to be doing. I think the book has been so well-received and has moved so many people because it's, in a way, unafraid and forthright about so much. And it deals with, you know, what reviewers like to call difficult themes. <laughs> <laughs> Sexual assault, a broken family, race, class, migration, movement, memory. And even as you've been talking, we know that there is so much of you and your experience in this, but you've also talked elsewhere 
about it not being autobiographical, but it being part of an internal dialogue, which I find so compelling. What does that mean as a as a writer? Yeah, I think a good writer can see a lot of perspectives. You know, I think that for me, even just in my own family, understanding that it's not just about right and wrong. It's not interesting when it's just about right and wrong. I think that there needs to be a moral code in writing. I recently watched this beautiful interview with Toni Morrison where she was just talking about how being kind is more interesting and being evil is boring. And I I related to that so much because I think they're- So powerful. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's as actually as simple as that, you know, it's actually so much more compelling to be kind and to write things that are about the process of evolution as opposed to the process of just like looking at all that is ugly, which I think you have to do. I think you have to, you know, acknowledge and, and face those things. But then I think in everything that I write, the theme is how do we move through this? Faria's protagonist is Talia Chatterjee, a young woman growing up in an affluent family in Manhattan, struggling to find acceptance and love. After a violent sexual assault, Talia is disowned, her only companion, the ghost of her Indian grandmother. And though the book dives headfirst into thorny territory, it's not without hope. It's been praised in places like the Globe and Mail, Vogue, and Refinery29, some critics calling it a stirring story about a young woman breaking free of oppression and trauma. It's not autobiographical, and it is at the same time. As everything with art, I think, often is. It is a, it's a pastiche of all the things you pick up on, and especially something that you've been you know, writing for so long. And for me, I didn't want to write characters that were just one-dimensional, because I don't think that that's service, a service to humanity. Even with Simon, who is, I guess, sort of, in a way, the villain, there are ways that I wanted to redeem him, and just, I didn't have to do it outrightly, but it, it, I wanted there to be like small moments of like very quiet redemption in Talia. And it wasn't really to do with him, but it was really to do with her and how she was digesting those moments in herself. You know, a moment like that for me is like when she's looking at herself in the mirror towards, you know, the later chapters and she's finally establishing an understanding and awareness of her own body, but she's been disassociative for so long. So that is a giant act for somebody who suffers with disassociation to actually like see themselves in a mirror. And then of course her family, her parents, who I I actually think are so cool, even though they're so complicated, because to me, they're the kind of aunties and uncles. And even though her mother is white and Jewish, I think that that was also a really important aspect of, you know, this assimilation that we see. And that was like really the underlying factor of her family, that both of her parents assimilated to white supremacy. Both of them assimilated into American culture, believing that it would buy them the the absolute redemption. And ultimately what they have to face 
with Alyssa and Talia further down the line is that you can't force children to become what you want them to be because they will take their lives in their own hands. They will take their own mortality if they have to, you know, like especially growing up in a household that didn't show a lot of love. I think that I wanted to write something that was about each family member trying to see the other for who they are in her small and very, you know, idiosyncratic ways. I think Talia really did begin to see her family and see her parents at the very least, and even see her sister a little more complexly at, at the end as well. And not just put her on a pedestal of perfection, but actually see her flaws and what ultimately brought her to the place that she eventually came in her own life. And I think that dialogue, again, that friction and that, um, that ability to use conflict as a way to sharpen and become clear in your, not only your own perspective, but also your objective as a human being. I think we all are, and when you know, you're in like sort of a healed or healing relationship, that helps. Or even when you're in a, an abusive relationship, you can fortify your own soul and your own, you know, state of evolution by actually using that energy to help you shapeshift. Although Fariha's writing can be deeply personal, she also considers herself to be part of a wider cultural shift. It's one that she and others have referred to as a new Muslim renaissance. I believe that we are pulling ourselves into the next renaissance and that I want to invest in Muslim thought. I want to invest in people who are thinking outside of the parameters of being. So to go back to this idea of read and the way that, you know, Muslims for the next 800 years during that beautiful age where we were investing in sciences and arts and, and translations, you know, like even something like uh, the House of Baghdad, which was created by the Caliph, by Caliph al-Mamun and his wife, Queen Boran, and she and him created this place where they were asking people from all over to bring books so they could translate them into Arabic. What kind of foresight does that take? What kind of belief does it take? That, to me, is what I'm fighting for. That is what keeps me going. It's that belief that there is so much here in this world, in this planet, in this earth, outside, in those trees, in those animals, that there is something to protect here and that in order to protect it we need to understand ourselves and we need to understand this world you know so that to me is what read means that first word is is so iconic to me because it's it is about pushing the boundaries and the limitations of your own mind Faria, i i so appreciate and am moved by the imagery of of renaissance and a Muslim Renaissance, an Islamic Renaissance. And I think you, along with so many incredible creatives and in writing and in music and in art, are showing us ways of being Muslim at the intersections, being Muslim in the whole of ourselves and everything that we are, and yet being confident about all those parts and being confidently Muslim. And I just read your piece, and, and, and I think it was Women's Health, where you speak about faith. 
And you wrote in that piece, my faith brought me so much peace. I don't know if I would have survived my life without it. Tell me a little bit of that journey, of that space of faith and and faithfulness. I love God. (laughs) I really do. I don't know why I have this deep devotion inside of me, but um, ever since I was a kid, I could feel it. I just had a deep, deep love for God. And my sister would always tell me that. She would always tell me that I was very close to God. And, and her and I have a very interesting relationship, too, because in a lot of ways, she sort of pursued more traditional aspects of Islam. You know, she put on the hijab and she had sort of this whole that life for a very long time. And I never wanted to look outwardly religious. I didn't have any interest or investment in that. I think it's because, again, like I had a father who showed me I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to look a certain way to consider myself Muslim or to consider myself of God, you know. And I think because I have, it was never dogmatic, it saved me. And I believe because I understood at a young age that I was being so betrayed by a caretaker that I needed another caretaker that I could just fully give into. And yeah, I mean, my my faith is why I didn't kill myself, honestly. And it's not because I was afraid, but because I knew God had given me this life for a reason. And I needed to see what I had to learn from this life. And because I didn't have any other choices and I was really pushed into a corner, I think I just got on my knees and prayed. And that's where I've been my entire life, just in prayer, because it's the only thing that brings me any peace. Fariha Roshin, what does this being human mean to you? I have so many things I want to say. Ah, God, honesty, kindness, truth, integrity. All of those things that Rumi had, it feels so potently through his work. You know, we we have done a lot of amazing conversations, but this has been remarkable. Thank you, Fariha, for being on This Being Human. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can find more resources related to this conversation by clicking on the link in the show notes. This Being Human is produced by Antica in collaboration with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton, with production assistance from Danya Ali and Abi Raheja. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Katie O'Connor is TVO's senior producer of podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. 
This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Islamic civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human. <laughs>